everyone. Welcome to another episode of The Street Theologian. And today we'll be talking about the first five books of the Bible called the Pentateuch. In fact, starting today and for the next five or six sessions, we'll be, well, I'll be focusing on giving some brief introductions about the different books of the Bible in order to encourage you to read on your own and to go deeper into biblical study. And the best place to begin would be the beginning. Um which is the Pentateuch. Basically, the Pentateuch contains the first five books of the Bible. These are Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. It starts from the creation of the world and goes up to the death of Moses. In Hebrew tradition, these five books are considered to be one single book, and they called it the Torah, which is Hebrew for law or teaching. The Torah is at the center of the Jewish sacred scripture, which consists in the Tanakha, the Torah, the Nebim, and the Ketubim. The Nebim refers to the Book of the Prophets, and the Ketubim refers to the other sacred writings, like the Psalms. And among these three categories, the Torah occupies the central place. Um, however, um, when the book, or when the books were translated to Greek in the Septuagint, the Greek version of the Old Testament. Um, it's called the Septuagint because traditionally it was believed that some 70 scholars um, collaborated in the translation of these books from Hebrew to Greek when the diaspora took place, when Jews um, began to live in other areas of the Hellenized world and knew probably more Greek than Hebrew. That's why they saw the need to translate um, their faith into this new language. Um, during the time of this diaspora and with the translation of the books to Greek, they began to use the name Pentateuch, which um, is Greek for book contained in five scrolls. It literally comes from the words pente, which means five, and teukos, which means scrolls. And this is why it's common to divide the story into five different books. So, I'll just give some brief introductions about the um, essential content of these books and then we'll be focusing on the question of the source of these books and some important themes um, regarding these books and I'll be focusing on the themes of creation and the theme of the covenant and the messianic promise. So basically Genesis, which has 50 chapters, recounts the origin of the world and the origin of man and the people of Israel. As we said in the previous podcast, or some previous podcasts, um, Genesis uses mythical and figurative language in order to communicate certain truths to us. And Exodus, on the other hand, it contains 40 chapters and it's a historical narration of the history of Israel um, within the kingdom of Egypt. Um, when they worked as slaves in Egypt and how they managed to liberate themselves from slavery through the help of a man chosen by God named Moses. And this is a very important event in the history of the people of Israel. In fact, in their many feasts, in their liturgy, there's always um, a moment called anamnesis, which is um, a memorial in which they recall the goodness of God, particularly referring to this event in their history when... God liberated them from slavery from Egypt. And the third book is Leviticus. It has 26 chapters and it contains Levitical laws and um, ways of worshipping God and certain things regarding the priesthood and sanctity. And the word derives from the fact that among the tribes of Israel, 
the Levites were the ones entrusted with taking care of the temple and with questions of worship. And it's a priestly tribe. And the book of Numbers has 36 chapters. It's called Numbers because it contains the censuses and the list of persons who left Egypt and who walked through the desert for 40 years until they reached the promised land. And finally, the book of Deuteronomy, it contains an elaboration of the laws given by Moses while they were at the desert when they were on their way to the promised land. And it's called Deuteronomy because literally in Greek, it means it comes from the Greek words deutero, which means second, and nomos, which means loss. So it's like the second law given by Moses before they enter the second land, the, the promised land. Um, Content-wise, the Pentateuch is both narrative and a collection of laws and norms, which reflect the different situations of the people of Israel. The events narrated from the creation of the world to the end of the pilgrimage to the desert and going to the promised land help to put these laws into a framework. And these laws find their reason for being in those events. And here it can be seen that the revelation of God really happens through words and actions which are intrinsically linked to one another in such a way that the works done by God function as support for his words. And the words, for their part, make clear the meaning of those actions, which is something we've been repeating, um, something that we find in the document of Revelation, the Verbo, which talks about Revelation as justice verbuisque. God reveals himself to us through his words, um, fulfilled in his actions, um, and actions which find their meaning in those words. Um, and it's important to underline the idea that the historical narrative is presented as the history of salvation. And the text of the Pentateuch highlights the importance of the divine promises and the covenants established by God in his project of salvation. You could say that this is the basic storyline of the entire Bible, not just in the Pentateuch, but even up to the New Testament. Um, the Bible is basically the story of God um, intervening in human history in order to bring humanity back to himself. Um, and now let's go to the question of authorship. Who wrote the Pentateuch? Who wrote these five books? Well, up to the 16th century, Judeo-Christian tradition had considered the Pentateuch to be a work substantially composed by Moses. And this affirmation is something that's reflected even in the New Testament when um, Jesus, in speaking with the Sadducees, um, said, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage of the burning bush, how God spoke to him? This is Mark um, chapter 12, verse 26. And, and here we see how Jesus refers to the Torah as the book of Moses. So it must be the common way of referring to the Torah during his time. There seems to be like an awareness that um, the narrative that we find in the Pentateuch has Moses as its author. And... It makes sense seeing that in the Old Testament, in many of in some of these books, in Exodus and Deuteronomy, we see specific passages in, in which Moses really does put things into writing. We see this, for instance, in Exodus 17, verse 24, when God commands Moses to write down the victory over the Amalekites. We also find this in Deuteronomy 31, when Moses wrote all the words which the Lord dictated to him, and then he gave them to the priests, to the sons of Levi. However, there are also opinions that um, the Pentateuch has different sources um, which derive from different oral traditions and which were eventually put into writing by a series of editors and 
probably the most um, the classic hypothesis of these different sources would be the documentary hypothesis by a scholar named Velhausen. Um, he said that reading through the narratives that we find in the Pentateuch, we can distinguish four different traditions. And he points out what these traditions are. He says there's a priestly source. It's a style of narrative that's more... Um, ritualistic um, it has a priestly a more solemn style um, it focuses on themes of um, the divinity and the covenant and then he identifies another tradition he calls it the Yahwist tradition um, which he says is more anthropological like it focuses on um, the psychology of the characters and it's more vivid it's less solemn and then he refers to another source, which is uh, basically talks about four sources. The third um, type of source, he calls it the Eloist source. Um, and he sees that we, he says that um, these are like fragmentary narratives that we find in different, mixed up in different parts of the Bible. And um, he says that its main theme is the covenant. For instance, he says we find this in the story of Joseph. Which centers on the history of Israel in particular, without considering the history of humanity. And finally, he talks about the Deuteronomist source, which he says is like a series of narratives which aren't actually narratives, but more like exhortative statements or laws um, that you find scattered um, throughout the entire Pentateuch. And and those who follow this theory today affirm that the Pentateuch in its definitive form would have been written in the time of um, Ezra around the um, 5th or 4th century BC. And for them, um, well, Ezra was a priest who, after the Babylonian exile, well, um, around the 6th century BC or the 5th century BC, um, Israel fell under the rule of the Babylonian Empire and many of the Jews were exiled there. They had to leave their temple behind. The temple was destroyed, um, ransacked. Many of them were exiled from the Promised Land. But after some time, um, when the Persians took over, um, they managed to conquer Babylonia and they allowed the Jews who were exiled in Babylonia to go back to their Promised Land and to rebuild their temple, to rebuild their lives there. And it was at this time that um, this um, priest came up his name is Ezra, and it is said in the narrative um, of Ezra <laughs> that he, in order to unite the different groups of people that have been fragmented among the among the Jews, one of his um, one way in which he attempted to unite them was by giving them back the law, giving them back the Torah. And there are theories that the definitive form of the Pentateuch that we have now has its origin in. Ezra in Ezra's rewriting of of the Torah, um, and yeah, but what does the Magisterium say about this? I Meaning, what does the Catholic Church say about this? How 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 do people react to it? Well, um, the Pipli- the Pontifical Biblical Commission or the PBC in 1948 wrote a letter to Cardinal Sohard, the Archbishop of Paris. Um, in which it does recognize that there can exist various sources and um, and it is possible to express various opinions with respect to the nature and the number of sources. Um, and there's no problem about it. Um, it's something that's open to reflection and open to further theological study. 
And in fact, this idea was reaffirmed in another document in 1993, again by the PBC, called the, the Interpretation of the Bible in the Church. And it talks about this documentary hypothesis. And again, it affirms that the question about the composition of the Pentateuch is an open topic and it still lacks a clear solution. However, given all this question about source and authorship, I guess it's important to underline the idea that um, the divine truths which the Bible communicate to us um, in the faith, it's something that transcends um, hermeneutic analysis. Mm, which doesn't mean that hermeneutical analysis is not important. In fact, it's very important. It helps us to know the genre of a, of a book, to know the writing style and the tradition it comes from is very important. Um, and there can exist various traditions behind the different books of the Bible, behind the Pentateuch. And it is possible that Ezra must have rewritten the entire book, although I doubt that he could have invented it out of the blue. Um, he must have written something that had already existed as oral tradition. And otherwise, it wouldn't have been enough in order to convince his people to unite together. It wouldn't have been if he had invented it all out of the blue. It wouldn't have been so convincing if the people, if it was not something that the people already knew because it existed in their oral tradition. But putting it, putting it into writing, um, gave them a reason to recognize its um, its unity as a as a book and their unity as a people, since his goal was to unite his people. Um, and so, I guess what's important to emphasize here is that, again, the hermeneutic value of these books is at the service of the interpretation of um, the truths that they want to communicate. And For instance, it's true that in Genesis, um, as we said in the previous um, podcast, it does use mythical and figurative language. And it doesn't mean that it's false, but most of the time, we use mythical language in order to communicate something that cannot be communicated using the categories that we know in real life. And certain narratives in Genesis that are parallel to other mythical narratives in other cultures, for instance, certain narratives in Genesis, like the, the, the Great Flood with Noah, um, has some resonance in, I don't know, narratives like the um, story of Gilgamesh, do these mean? Do, do these parallelisms mean that uh, it's all myth? That these narratives don't exist? Well, um, on one hand, the fact that you have two parallel narratives in different cultures—if anything—I think it supports the fact that the Great Flood did happen. And on the other hand, um, in interpreting the figurative language of Genesis, what's important is to understand the truth that it intends to communicate to us—the truth essential for salvation. It tends to communicate to us. In fact. Um, the story of Genesis, particularly the story of the fall, um, shows us how wounded humanity throughout the entire history of humanity um, constantly falls into that attempt in order to be like God, but without God. Because this is basically what this, the sin of Adam and Eve consisted in. When the serpent tempted them to eat of the fruit of the tree. The temptation was basically, if you do this, you will be like God. And stories like stories in Genesis after the fall um, like um, the flood and the Tower of Babel are basically manifestations of, or yeah, manifestations of um, 
man's constant desire to be like God without without God's help, so to speak. And I think this is more important than trying to see to what extent the story of Gilgamesh is embedded into the biblical narrative. Um, anyway, having said this, um, I'd like to focus on certain aspects of the Pentateuch that I think are very important in the whole context of the Bible. And these are, well, the story of creation and um, the concept of the covenant, which is at the base of the entire biblical narrative. And in the story of creation, as we said earlier, um, there are two distinct narratives. You have the Yahwist and the priestly tradition, um, which have different styles of telling the same creation narrative. One is more solemn and um, liturgical, meaning like it's a text meant to be used in a context of um, worship in the temple. And the other is more anthropomorphic, where um, it describes the actions of Adam and Eve. And I guess transcending the differences between these two different traditions, um, one important truth that they tell us is that, well, in the end, God is the source of all being. Um, the word used to describe creation is bara, which means to make something out of nothing. And it's it's only used with God as the subject. And this concept or this verb actually appears in a more salvific context. For instance, in the book of Isaiah, um, it uses the word bara in a salvific context, which means that um, the history of salvation um, from the very beginning has existed. That even from the act of creation, God already wants to save man. To, God's initial desire for man is to give him back, is to, to bring him back to himself. Um, creation and salvation are intrinsically related. Um, and the other interesting aspect about the creation narrative is the creation of man, that um, man is created in the image and likeness of God. Um, and in fact, in the creation of man, the word bara is used three times, maybe to emphasize the solemnity of this moment. Um, fathers of the church, like St. Augustine, have always interpreted this idea that man is created in the image and likeness of God as man possessing freedom, that... Um, which is what distinguishes man from all other creatures. And this is what makes us um, capable of loving God, day, um, capable of God, that we are free beings with reason and will, able to direct ourselves to the other um, without being obliged to. And this is something we know about man because of the creation narrative. And finally, another important aspect that I'd like to underline in the creation narrative is the fact that um, it tells us how God, after having created the world, rested. And and this is the, the concept of the Sabbath, the, the day of rest, um, which constitutes a symbol of the first covenant. That in the end, um, creation finds its end in the glory of God. Um, and God rested not in the sense of like, oh yeah, now I'm done with creating the world, now I'm gonna leave it behind. No, it's not a God who's indifferent towards his creation. In fact, in describing that God rested, um, the creation narrative also described that God is pleased with his work. Um, it shows us God blessing his creation. He's not an indifferent God who creates and leaves um, his work alone, like um, Frankenstein and Frankenstein. Um, no, but... Um, God continuously 
unites himself to his creation through his blessing. And this blessing is not something that is isolated in the creation narrative, but it's a um, constant attitude of God to his creation throughout the entire history of humanity. And I guess it's also important to highlight that the creation narrative is not meant to be a scientific explanation of the origin of the world, but it highlights the divine omnipotence in creation in its end. And it shows how man is the summit of creation, and man, the summit, finds its fulfillment in the even greater summit of creation, which is God. Um, so when you read how God created the world in seven days, it has to be understood within a certain context. So for instance, the Jewish faith is a numeric faith, so to speak, in a sense that it puts a lot of symbolism in numbers. And the number seven um, appears several times, including in this in this context, in the context of creation. It's a number of fulfillment. It's a number of, um, of greatness. It's a great number that indicates the fulfillment of something. So God creating the world in seven days um, has to be understood more in this context, and it's not meant to contradict um, or it's not meant to, to give a scientific explanation of the creation of the world. And finally, I'll be talking about the concept of the covenant, which is at the center of the entire biblical narrative. And in the Old Testament, um, the concept of covenant is referred to with the word berit, which refers to a bilateral pact among two parties. And in the case of God and humanity, this bilateral pact um, is um, summarized in the formula, I will be your God and you will be my people. In this um, mutual choice of God to his people and the people to God. It's like a, a covenant, you might describe it as a, um, a pact of me giving myself to you and you giving yourself to me exclusively. And this is something that's renewed with the patriarchs throughout the entire history of Israel. And the covenant is usually marked by a specific sign and a specific sacrifice. A sign because, well, I guess God in revealing himself to humanity also enters into human nature and enters into um, human psychology. Like God reveals himself to us using our language. And as human beings, it's very normal to manifest a relationship with another person through a specific sign. Um, we are body and soul, and what we have inside us, we want it to be seen in something concrete outside of us, in a concrete symbol. Um, I don't know, as children, I don't know if you've ever had friendship bracelets with your group of friends in high school, <laughs> or, or the, the wedding ring. It's very, um, a very concrete sign of um, how a relationship between two, in, two, two individuals, a man and a woman, is um, manifested in, in different ways, but in a, in a particular way, and in, in them having the same ring um, with their names on, on each other's rings. And, um, and the concept of a sacrifice is something that, as an essential dimension of the covenant, is, um, sort of signifies how my self-giving to you is manifested in me doing away with something that I find valuable. I don't know, a lamb or um, the turtle doves that I could have, I don't know, used to entertain my, my children. But, um, but instead, I sacrifice it to you. The notion of sacrifice, it's a manifestation of that act of self-giving. Me giving away something that's good to me because... I want to show you how much you mean to me. And so these two dimensions, um, 
sacrifice and, and the sign are important aspects of what the covenant is. And um, and this covenant finds its fulfillment finally in the death of Christ on the cross because he becomes that ultimate sacrifice, um, God's self-giving to his people, to consider the covenant as an act of self-giving between humanity and the divinity. This mutual act of self-giving finds its fulfillment in the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. This is God giving himself to us and man giving himself to God. Um, all manifested in, in the same person, in the same sacrifice. And this is what makes it um, totally new because it overcomes, so to speak, or it's way superior to the other old sacrifices that were used and the other covenants that man had renewed with God. And, and this is why this new covenant finds, uh, has a more, well, not has a more, has an infinite value. It's not something that needs to be renewed because it in itself um, is already complete and perfect. And at the same time, it's a covenant that extends not just to a specific people, but to, in, to the entire humanity. Um, in, the old, in the Old Testament, um, the covenant is um, formulated as like, I am your God and you are my people, referring to the people of Israel. But in the covenant consecrated by Christ with his sacrifice on the cross, um, this covenant extends to the entire humanity. And we know that Christ did not die for the Jews, but he died for the world. Um, he gave himself up to humanity, not just to a specific group of people. We see this in St. John when he, um, he says that God loved the world and he gave his only son so that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. So this covenant, what makes it different from the old covenant is that it has a universal scope. It's um, applied to everyone who freely decides to um, be penetrated by, by this new law of grace that we find in, in Christ. Um, well, that's it for now and I feel bad that I'm not able to talk about all of the books of the Pentateuch in an extensive way, but it's a, I guess this is a good introduction in order to keep you reading. and. In the next episode, I'd be giving another brief introduction of the books of the prophets. Again, if you have any comments or questions or yeah, any feedback, um, feel free to write to thestreettheologian at gmail.com.